Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivory. Today, the life and legacy of Mark Rothko. In 1903, a boy named Marcus Rothkowitz was born in Dvinsk. That was a town in what was then the Russian Empire. Like many Jews of that era, he moved with his family to the United States. That journey changed his life forever. Rothkowitz grew up to become the painter Mark Rothko, and he's the focus of a new biography by Annie Cohen-Solal. The book is part of Yale University Press's Jewish Live series, which sponsored this podcast, and we'll be speaking with Cohen Solal in just a moment. But first, here is today's Vox Beat. Over the past few months, the Vox Tablet team has been hard at work on a very special project. It's a one-hour Passover show called We'll Be Here All Night that we produced for public radio. It's hosted by yours truly, me, and it includes a few other voices you'll recognize from Vox Tablet, people like Edgar Carrot and Jonathan Goldstein. You can hear the whole thing, whether or not it airs on your local station, simply by downloading the next episode of this podcast in a couple of weeks. Meantime, here's a quick sneak peek. This is Michael Twitty, a food historian and Jewish educator. He's talking about how he's adapted the symbols of Passover to his own history as an African-American descendant of slaves. I first started experimenting with the Seder plate um, after a couple of Freedom Seders where they tried to incorporate some elements of African-American culture, history into the idea of a Seder plate as a symbolic representation. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Well, if I never, never see you anymore. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. I'll meet you on the other show. So, you know, there was um, the collard green is maror with a bitter herb. Um, some people know it as horseradish. Collard greens are a bitter green. And they immediately bring to mind um, the gardens of enslaved people. You know, I thought about the matzah. There was no matzah on the plantations of the American South, but there was hoe cake, you know, white cornmeal, coarsely ground, mixed with water, you know, barely just cooked into a cake, a flat cake that made you feel full, not tasty at all, not delicious, but it was the hardtack of American slavery. In the much way matzah is considered the hardtack of, you know, the peasant world, you know, millennia ago. So then comes, okay, what do you do for salt water? Well, salt water, that's a beautiful symbol because it transcends both cultures. It can be tears, but for me it was the waters of the Middle Passage. Um, the idea that the ocean brought us, the ocean absorbed bodies that were tossed into its waters as slave ships made their crossing. And then the chicken bone, that's very interesting. The zroa is a lamb bone on the traditional Seder plate. Um, symbolizing the uh, sacrifices in the Holy Temple. And for me, the chicken bone was uh, sort of satirical, sort of funny, but also very true. Um, As African Americans made their migration north, they often went on what they call the chicken bone express, 
which was a cute little nickname for the trains that would take you to Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, or the West Coast. And you couldn't eat with white people. You couldn't eat their food. Nobody would sell you anything. And you could, probably couldn't afford it. So you traveled with a box of chicken and other food that you know your family packed for you. This was your last home-cooked Southern meal before you went to the quote-unquote promised land for a better life, a better job, and a life that wasn't um, determined by Jim Crow. For me, as a Jew of color, as an African-American Jew, to not remember, to sort of forget or sort of separate those two struggles when I absolutely do come from enslaved people, uh, their blood runs through my veins, is um, it's not an option. And I don't want people to forget that. I don't want to be seen as just another Jew. I want to be seen as a Jewish person who has a rich and multi-layered legacy that I have to live up to. That's Michael Twitty, one of the many voices from We'll Be Here All Night, Stories for Passover. Okay, so Mark Rothko. Along with Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning, Mark Rothko was a titan in 20th century art. He was an abstract expressionist painter who more or less started the color field movement. But he had a vexed relationship with art dealers and with the art market, and an equally vexed relationship with his own background. What was the basis of this turmoil? What was he trying to achieve in his art? And what is his legacy? These are some of the questions biographer Annie Cohen-Solal tackles in the newest book from Yale's Jewish Live series. She joins us today in the studio to talk about it. Annie Cohen-Solal, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you. You've written biographies of the writer Jean-Paul Sartre and the art dealer Leo Castelli. Why Mark Rothko? What most interested you about his life and work? Actually, I'm not a biographer. I want to tell you, sorry about that. I don't know what a biographer is. I'm a historian. I'm a cultural and social historian. So what I do is research in history around people whom I call agents of society, people who really act out things in, in a society. So Jean-Paul Sartre was an intellectual who was also a, a philosopher, but also some, somebody who was very much committed to politics. Uh, Leo Castelli was a gallerist who really changed the status of the artist in the United States. And Mark Rothko was much more than a painter. So in a way, this is a common thread between these three books that you, you mentioned. Before we get into what made Rothko more than just a painter, I wonder if you can backtrack a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about his family and childhood. Yeah, when you said he was born in the Russian Empire, I would like to be more precise. He was born in the Pale of Settlement of the Russian Empire, which is this huge territory where the Jews were basically parked. So he was born in a city, Dvinsk, which is now south part of Latvia. And his family was a family of intellectuals. His father was a pharmacist in the city of Dvinsk, also by the what you call the, the public writer of the city. So he was providing not only medicine, but also words. And uh, the mother came from St. Petersburg. She was one of those uh, Jewish families which was outside the ghetto. They were very secular. So he's the youngest of four children. 
and his two older brothers were threatened to be drafted in the Russian army, as was the case for Jewish families. And they would be taken for 25 years, which is horrible. So the father decided to try and protect the younger child, and he put him in the Talmud Torah. So that's basically the story. And then when he was at the age of 10, uh, little Marcus moved with his mother and sister to the United States, where the father had gone a few months before to join his own family in Portland, Oregon. He was put in a Talmud Torah when he was in the Pale. When they came to this country, to Portland, did he continue any Jewish education? Was there any kind of Jewish uh, affiliation Mm -hmm. that the family embraced once they arrived here? Actually, you know, the migration is a very interesting phenomenon. When they arrived in Portland, they were supported by the family, but then they were supported by the Jewish community. Um, Social services. Exactly. So when the Rotkovich family arrived, they went to the neighborhood house where the mother learned English. And the little boy, he started a magazine. And when he had trouble with the local non-Jewish school called Lincoln High School, where he felt that the you know, the, the the magazine, but also the clubs were not particularly open to Jews. Then he went back to the neighborhood house and he expressed himself in the minority culture of the Jews from Portland in order to bounce back. So it's a very interesting back and forth tension, you know, between the minority culture and the American culture. So he's been very brilliant at playing those tools, you see. As I as you describe it in the book, his uh, entree into the world of art, into deciding to become an artist, seemed almost random to me. It was like he dropped out of Yale because he had a bad experience there, and he was bumming more around. More than a bad experience. Yes, more you than call a, bad, it a bad experience. <laughs> a very bad experience. Yeah. And he was bumming around New York City, and he goes to the Art Student League to visit a friend, and he thinks, "Gee, well, sure, I'll be an artist." Was it quite that arbitrary? Listen, I think it's both an epiphany and a necessity. Because it's true that it happens by accident. But as soon as it happens, he realizes that it is the only territory in which he can build himself an identity in American society. Why? Because at Yale, he couldn't find a mentor, for example. He didn't find a teacher he wanted to follow. In the art world, yes, he will. He meets with Max Weber, who's a son of a rabbi, studied with Picasso in Paris, And then he meets Milton Avery, and he becomes one of the students of Milton Avery. So this is something he likes, and he will in turn become a professor at the Brooklyn Center, you know, Jewish Brooklyn. So this is something that he was expecting from his childhood in the Talmud Torah, and that's something he was expecting at Yale, but he didn't get. So in a way, the art world gave him back this tradition of the relationship between mentor and student. And I think that's one of the reasons. Had he shown any particular uh, artistic inclination as a child? No, not really. No, he was not a good draftsman. He did, you know, how do you go into art? You know, either your family drags you to the museum when you're a kid. This was not so much the case. Or, you know, you're, I think, I always looked at the art world as a social historian, as I told you. I think the artist is a whistleblower. And Rothko is going to write a book in 1940. 
he stops painting for a year. He's lost. And he writes a book called The Artist's Reality that only many years later, his own son, Christopher, would trans- find, transcribe, and publish. It was published in 2005. And in this book, you get a key to the reason why maybe Mark Rothko became an artist and why what he felt into the the job uh, um, it's more than a job it's you know the, the the investment you know he invested into the it's he, because in this book he he asked himself he revisited how the artists were considered in all cultures and all times and he said art is not only an action is it's a social action and he feels that the artist is like a prophet and he will you know, uh, endow this profession with, you know, this kind of mission. It's a mission. Well, what is it? Mitzvah. That, I mean, <laughs> what is it that he is uh, blowing the whistle on? I, I mean, y- there is definitely the sense that comes across in your book that there is a political component to art making for him. So given that, what is the political uh, point that he's trying to drive home to people? He, first of all, art for him is a way to find his own identity in American society without complying. He doesn't become a regionalist artist. He doesn't like them. He doesn't like what they do. He doesn't like the museums which carry those artists. Uh, originalist, that's what you said? Regionalist. Regionalist, like whom? Thomas Hart Benton. You see, the, 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 the professor of Jackson Pollock, the murals, descriptive murals. He finds its way to, you know... Literal. Boring, literal. That's exactly it. So what he's interested in is transmission of the importance of art. And Mark Rothko is going to always try, and you ask me the relationship with Sartre, for example, to empower the viewer. You know, art is not something that has to be consumed. Watching works of art is something which has to transform you, to make you better, to make you think. Art is an experience. So it's it's an existential moment in your life. He was very clear about that. And that's one of the reasons why he, he fought both the establishment in the United States and he decided to shift to another gear at the time where he was very successful. He just completely changed. He was commissioned the Seagram murals in this huge, uh, you know, skyscraper on Park Avenue with the very rich restaurant, which gave him the idea of being site-specific, you know, to do an environment. But after a while, he thought and he felt, I don't want these rich people to eat in front of my paintings. I want people to feel emotion the same way I put emotion in them. So I give back the money. I take back my work. And I'm going to do something completely different. So he doesn't go with the market. He doesn't go with what pleases the public. He searches. He experiments. And that is going to be an absolutely brilliant moment. So the last 10 years of his life, he will create this Rothko Chapel. In Houston, yeah. Yes, in Houston, Texas, together with Dominique, which has become the pilgrimage space, uh, the most visited by people who really believe in 
nonviolence in the world, you know. So today, I mean, Mark Roscoe is more alive than ever. Given the fact that he uh, pulled out of the Seagram's project because he thought it was so distasteful and catered so much to, you know, the super rich and a kind of vulgarity of excess. What do you think you would make of the fact that there's this upcoming auction at Christie's this spring where one of his paintings is expected to get up to $50 million? That's a good question. Yeah, I agree. That's a good question. But it doesn't only assess, uh, you know, market value. It also assesses his legacy. You know, if the legacy is assessed through market value, so be it. It's a sign of the time. But I can tell you too that Today, there's, there are huge crowds. I was, you know, I live in Paris and I, I went a lot to The Hague, uh, where in September a Rothko show opened in the Remente Museum. I think there were quite a million people who went for five months. It was, it was mesmerizing. This show is now going to Korea. And then to use, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary the way he, you know, I really observe the way people watch Rothko's art and they stop, you know. They don't, you cannot look at Rothko's art without sitting down and coming out completely like meditation. So if today his painting is going to be the key of the sales at Christie's in May, I don't think it, it's in contradiction with, you know, him you also have the Roscoe Chapel where you don't have to pay, you know, and the 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 Dominial uh, the Dominial Foundation you don't have to pay. So you know, um, you said that uh, Rothko wanted to create an experience, and and you observed when people were looking at Rothko's paintings that they become immersed in this experience. I mean, they're kind of absorbed into these vast canvases. But what does the work look like? Can you describe it a little bit for us? Yeah. And why does it have that impact on people? So progressively, Rothko's art evolved from being figurative to being abstract. And he found his signature style in 1950. The signature style is made of, you know, rectangles of colors floating on top of the other one. And your eye cannot really focus on one or the other one. So it's really mesmerizing. And they're very big, so you, you can – it's like like stepping into a stage, you know. But when he evolved after dropping the Seagram Commission, he went into something more radical. The Seagram Commission gave him the idea of a site-specific, you know, where you're surrounded by the art. And he exploited it by looking for different pigments with different fabrics, which would – turn the paint into something almost fluorescent in which your retina is attracted by the color. It's almost chemistry. And it's like a magnet. You're magnetized. So these are the last discoveries of the last decade of his life. It's intellectual. It's metaphysical. It's scientific, you know. So... He has, I think that Roscoe has really invented a new approach to art where you don't, you don't get out of it, you know, um, unchanged. It touches. You said earlier uh, that he sort of saw himself as a prophet. Did he ever write that or is that um, your understanding of his approach? You know, you may ask me, 
how Jewish was he? Oh, how Jewish was how he? How Jewish his art was, <laughs> you know? And in fact, I think all his system of values is Jewish. Everything, you know? He's a teacher. He's a reader. He's a writer. He's an intellectual. He has a sense of ethics. He has a sense of history. He's abstract. Uh, in fact, his Jewishness, I would say, is much more in the fact that what he searches for is an identity. You know, he's not at ease with American society. He's not at ease with rejections of the WASP clubs at Yale. He's not at ease with the Met, you know, which is just showing regional art. He's a guy who carries a big anxiety, you know, the anxiety of the exiled. And in fact, the only way he will be able to express it is not through existing institutions, but through a new kind of institution that he invents. So that's the way in which I can describe his Jewishness. I am thinking of some Jewish writer, critic that your audience might know, Harold Rosenberg. Yes. Of course. In a beautiful piece in 1946, he wrote, Is there a Jewish art? And he said, The common point between the Jewish artists is their search for identity. Frequently in the book, you refer to Rothko as the avant garde Jew, and I wondered what you meant specifically by that. Yeah, this is a quote by Irving Howe. He said he's someone who is into the Jewish world, secular, but also in a, in a position where he, he looks for new ways to build his belief. You know, he's, he's projecting himself way beyond his time. And, you know, I had a very beautiful feeling in, in the Netherlands recently because the Rosco show was drawing so many people and it was ending 1st of March. But mid-February opened another show in Amsterdam, the late Rembrandt show. And in fact, Rothko had a passion for Rembrandt. Actually, he identified with Rembrandt. And those two weeks, the last two weeks of February, you had an overlap. And those crowds looking at these two major artists, three centuries apart, who were both experimenting beyond the taste of their society. You know, Rosco could have easily gone on his signature style. He did not. He looked further. Same thing with Rembrandt, you know. He was in the Jewish bride painting. What he does is not conforming to the face of the people who commissioned this. No, he was experimenting the sculpture on this yellow sleeve. He made it into a sculpture. So this is fascinating. The way. So that's what I'm interested in, you know, how... In fact, Rothko has a vision that the artist is a hero. For him, the artist, most of the time, favored hunger over compliance. And he loves that. When Rothko died in 1970, his death was ruled a suicide. What were the circumstances that led to his death? Was he somebody who suffered from depression his whole life? For a year and a half, he had suffered from a stroke, and he had to take a lot of medicine, which put him in a very unbalanced situation physically, emotionally, psychologically. He left his wife. He went to live in his studio. He was diminished. He started drinking. 
And he started not so much to produce, but to handle his production of the past. You see, So he had many, many paintings in storages around the city. And he got visits from, from many dealers or collectors from all over the world or museum people who were pressing him to sell. And, so. and he was not very good at that, you know. So there was a situation where he was surrounded by people pushing him and himself feeling not really at ease with all that. And I think that's one of the reasons why he decided to take his life. I don't want to do cheap psychology. Of course. But I want to analyze, you know, the power games. And apparently his last gallerist was not recommendable. That was the Marlboro Gallery. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then there was this terrible lawsuit that Absolutely. lasted for many that, years that, that after that his children, death. Children, I mean, at age, a young age, started to fight and it lasted 14 years, but they won. And, and they, you know, they are so elegant that they say, actually, it's a good thing because now we have the Rothko Foundation and the paintings are in the National Gallery in Washington. And so they can lend a lot to different places and so on. So they see the good part of it, which is, and I see think that, you know, for example, they they accepted to lend eight paintings to a new center called the Roscoe Center in the place where he was born in Dvinsk. Although, you know, the father has never gone back and the country had had a terrible history with the Jews, terrible, where the Jewish culture completely disappeared. But the children went and actually I met them there. Uh, for the opening. It was the 23rd of April, 2013. And I think it was an extraordinary gesture, you know, and I thought I saw that as an omen for the 21st century, you know. If the 20th century was this century of of wars, of, you know, the Holocaust, the Shoah, the 21st can be one of Tikkun Haolam, you know, and the way these two children were smiling in this place with these Rothko flags, with the Rothko paintings. I mean, with eight works of art, we don't have eight works of art in the Pompidou Center in Paris, you know, in this place, which is pretty much the middle of nowhere. I think that was an extraordinary gesture, don't you think? Definitely. And I think that it's in museums that, you know, a transcultural identity can be built. I believe in that. Annie Cohen-Solal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Fun. Annie Cohen-Solel is the author of Mark Rothko, Toward the Light in the Chapel. It's a new biography out from Yale University Press's Jewish Live series, which sponsored this podcast. We should note that the Jewish Live series won the 2014 National Jewish Book Award. If you're a fan of Vox Tablet and you want to review us on iTunes, we would love it. More reviews on iTunes means somehow that we will get ranked higher in their ranking, which means more listeners, and we want more listeners for this podcast. So please go for it. Review us. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I am your host. I'm Sarah Ivry. I thank you so much for joining us.